My best friend in college was a nerd. He wasn't, well, he wasn't much of a nerd. He, that, that's, that's not fair. Um, he was cool, kind of, kind of, at the same time. But anyway, he just loved studying. And what he did was he spent a lot of time in the university library. And he spent, uh, usually, often, until midnight when the library closed each, uh, each day. And I liked him so much that I also spent a lot of time library, in the library so I could spend time with him. And if you're an Asian mom, I think this is like your dream come true, isn't it? It's like a friend who helps you to study um, together. Well, in our senior year, one of us thought out loud, wouldn't it be great if we could spend the night at Buzzwell Library, if we could camp out here for one evening? So we made meticulous plans, and we thought about where we're going to hide in the closing hours. Um, when we were scouting out the library, we, we, also, we realized that there were motion sensors everywhere in the library. And so we hid our um, snacks in one place. Um, we actually even brought out, uh, brought out uh, sleeping bags and put it in, in, in a couple of different places. Um, but also, not just snacks in one place, but all around the libraries, because who knows where we might be stuck um, um, it was an impeccable plan, and we were going to camp out in at Buswell Library overnight. But we also made Plan B, a contingency plan, for if things go wrong, if the motion sensors were triggered, if the alarm bell ringed, we planned that which way we planned out which way we would uh, we would run. And the plan was that initially we would run together and then set, go our separate ways to diffuse the the force of the chasing chasing police. We also wore black shirts um, out outside, but also bright shirts underneath, so that as we were running, we could take off our black shirt and emerge with our bright shirts underneath. So that was our plan B. The whole thing was brilliant. And if you want to know how it ended, talk to me afterwards. I'll let you know. Um, but now, this is the point. If you're wondering what this has to do with the day of Pentecost, well, not, not much. <laughs> um, but here is what I want to say out of all of that. It's that Jesus made one plan. Plan A, and there was no plan B, no plan B. The whole thing, this is the poster for A-team, there's no plan B. Jesus said no plan B in bringing the whole world to himself. He only had one plan. Remember what Luke wrote um, in chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. So if you just could turn back there. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You see, in the former book, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote about what Jesus began to do and began to teach. And in Acts, this second book, he tells us all about how Jesus continues that work, the plan of salvation through the apostles, his disciples, the church, the people of God, was the plan A, and there's no other plan. Through the disciples, through the church, God is going to bring, God is going to continue the work that Jesus started, and God is going to bring all people to himself um, through, through the church. And apostles weren't brilliant or rich or bold or strong. They were fishermen mostly, and that was the team. There is no contingency plan. It's the church that will have to carry out this plan. So, 
now the first point. The only thing is that, as we have heard a couple of weeks ago, um, they were going to receive help. They weren't going to be alone in doing this. The apostles were going to receive the Holy Spirit. And when I, what I want to talk about is how the Spirit, how, how the Spirit continues that work through the church. Um, even today, and what that plan is. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, they received the Holy Spirit. They were gathered in one place. We're not really sure if this is 120 disciples mentioned in Acts 1.15 or the 12, or just the 12 disciples. Uh, but they were gathered in one place. And as the Spirit came down, there was a blowing of a, a violent wind. The tongues of fire rested on each one of them, and the ministry of the Spirit began, erupted immediately. And verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. This is probably different from tongues that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. There, when he, Paul talks about the tongues, it's unintelligible, and it needs to be interpreted. But here, it makes communication clear. Everyone hears, and that's the point. They're speaking in different languages. Everyone in the known Jewish world was gathered in that place because of uh, to, to, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacle. Um, uh, and everybody heard something in their own language. And as you have, you have no doubt heard, this is the great reversal of the confusion of language that happened in Tower of Babel. As they were confused and separated all over the world, this is the beginning of God's plan of bringing people of all nations to himself in one place. And everyone hears the same message. And they ask the question in verse 14, what does this mean? They hear the language, they hear um, uh, people speaking in different languages, and they go, what does this mean? And this is, uh, I think, the work of the Holy Spirit. I think there is a principle to be drawn out here. The coming of the Spirit causes people to ask questions about Him. And that happened on the Pentecost Day. And it's happening even now. God keeps the work of Christ going on earth by compelling people to ask these questions. Why does this happen? Why does God do this? Who is God? What does this mean? Remember, I think if you look back at Jesus' ministry, the work that Jesus began, the how, how Jesus worked was actually got by uh, compelling people to ask questions themselves. For example, when Jesus drove out demons, Jesus drove out demons, people asked, what is this? And a new teaching with authority, they asked. When Jesus healed the sick, he actually told people that their sins are forgiven as well. And it prompted people to ask, how can this fellow talk like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors, people asked, why does he eat, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Even the parables he told, people came to him and asked, what do you mean by all of that? And that was the work of Jesus, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, it continues, even now. Sometimes it's, it is through marvelous miracles, even today. The work of the Spirit um, is, he does these things to raise people, uh, uh, to raise questions in people, um, 
sometimes it's through marvelous miracles. I went to uh, one of the events that Robert Joy helped to organize, um, in which this person talked about how God miraculously healed him um, uh, from cancer. And could you imagine what doctors and nurses, relatives, all the people around him were asking at that point? How could this happen? Who is this that, that, that is able to do this? But the Spirit's work doesn't have to be spectacular. Sometimes Jesus did raise questions through miracles, but he also did it through teaching. Um, and the Holy Spirit prompted scholars all over the world, um, Christian scholars uh, all over the world, to devote their time to raise questions, to ask questions, um, to defute um, uh, arguments, but also to raise questions. I have a friend who's just completed his PhD in, um, uh, uh, in apologetics at King's College. He, his thesis was on bodily resurrection of Jesus. And that, through his speaking engagements and, and, and through his interactions with others, people are asking questions, who is this? How can this happen? And sometimes it's also through uh, the, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Some people live such godly lives. In the world, the people see their good deeds and ask, how could you do this? My friend was also just preaching about a, a, a person who came to his office when he used to work, into his office uh, mad and furious because of the headline of a newspaper that said, Christian parents forgave the, 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 the murderer um, of their child. And he said, well, how could this happen? How could Christians do this? What does this mean? Verse 14. And there are many of you who through the grace given through the Spirit are doing the same now. You are living, uh, doing your jobs differently, the same job that everybody else is doing, but differently. Treating the same colleagues differently. Treating parents or children and friends differently. And living life differently. And that's making people ask, making people around you ask the question, why? What does that mean? When the Spirit poured down on the Pentecost day, that was the question that people asked. What does this what does this mean? And that's happening even now. But of course, this isn't always the case. Some people will scoff no matter what, no matter how extraordinary the miracle is, no matter how extraordinary the teaching is or the arguments or the deeds are. They will deny the miracle, refute the arguments and and see uh, see your good deeds as foolishness. It was the same on the day that the Spirit came down, poured down like torrential rain on the Pentecost day. Look at verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said they had too much wine. That will happen. But the, the Spirit's work in raising people, raising in people questions about who God is. But it's not enough, obviously, just to raise questions, isn't it? There must be answers as well. And as after all, Peter tells us uh, that we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have in First Peter 3.15. And Peter, on that Pentecost day, became ready to give that answer as a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When the crowd asked, what does that mean? Peter stands up. In verse 14, and he preaches about Jesus. And if you see the context of Peter's life, that's an extraordinary thing. Last time he spoke, he denied Jesus. 
three times, even after seeing Jesus' body, not just Peter, but all the disciples, nobody spoke up, nobody went out to tell people about Jesus. But when they received the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised, they would, they became witnesses. And Peter stood up and preached. And Christians have been preaching and speaking since, ever since then about Jesus. And so let's quickly just review what Peter says about Jesus. First, Peter answers questions about the language. He says that it's an evidence of the coming of the last days. So look at verse 17. He says that the last days have begun. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. God's God will shower down His Spirit on all people in the last days, in the days between Jesus' coming and Jesus' second coming. That's the last days. And the evidence of the, the fact that it's the last day is that Spirit is poured out upon everyone, sons and daughters, young and old, servants and masters. That's the, that, 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 as Joel prophesied, this has been fulfilled, he says. But then he really begins his sermon in verse 22 with these words. Fellow Israelites, listen to, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. This historical sermon's focus is crystal clear. It begins with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. The Spirit allows him to bear witness to Jesus Christ. You know, the Spirit doesn't bear witness to itself. Spirit doesn't go, come to me. The Spirit goes, go to Jesus. And that's the message of Peter when he received the Spirit. He stands up and he points to Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, my fellow Israelites, Jesus Christ. Peter says that Jesus was a man of the, man of the miracles and signs in verse 23. And they should know this because they were there, he says. It was only 50 days or so uh, before this event. He he then says he was, he, Jesus was crucified on the cross by you, by you, with the help of wicked men, presumably the Romans, according to God's plan. And you see now why Peter didn't speak up before. He stood up. He says, they, well, they killed his master. And he says, now he's accusing them of being a murderer. And in verse 24, he says, well, it didn't end there. Jesus rose again because it's impossible. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on the giver of life. He then quotes from Psalm 16, that, 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 that long verse, uh, verses there in um, verses 25 to 28. Um, he, he quotes from Psalm 16 and talks about how the resurrection. Now he says this wasn't that, that Psalm, as it was historically interpreted, was about David, he says. But it wasn't about David. This is about Jesus. And he says in verse 29 that uh, David died and was buried and his, his tomb is here today. And verse 32, like, but God has raised Jesus to life and we're all witnesses. So he talks about Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And in verses 33 to 35, Peter then will talk about how Jesus ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. 
And once again, the, 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 he quotes from Psalm 110.1 and says that that too wasn't about David. This was about Jesus. Jesus rose again from the dead. Jesus ascended into heaven. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And he draws the conclusion in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, the Lord and Messiah. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, coming of the Spirit, you'd think this is something that you have all heard before. This is a bit boring. But this is a basic message that we'll never grow out of. Peter began his sermon with, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus must be the beginning and ending of all our speaking about God, for it's impossible to preach the gospel without mentioning the name of Jesus. You might have all kinds of fancy arguments about Christianity. You might have thought, uh, to, uh, 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 you know, when you think about your friends who don't yet believe in Jesus, you might have thought about all kinds of ways to bring that person into relationship with Jesus. You might have... You might speak in tongues and pro- you might prophesy. There might be uh, miracles that happen. But at the end of the day, somebody needs to stand up and preach the name of Jesus. Because only that name can save. Only, a bit, because only He is the giver of life. Only he, a relationship with Him, uh, well, we can have life in, uh, in Him. A couple of years ago in London, I was leading um, a, a course called Christianity Explored, and one of the, um, the girls became Christian through the studies, and we had just completed um, the study on the cross, and this girl began to just sob. And in between her sobs, she would say, Jesus loves me, so he died for me. And that's the cry of the Holy Spirit, and that's the message of the church. It's the only message that can save. So I don't mind telling you again, and you shouldn't mind hearing again. This is the only message that has saved you, and this is the only message that will keep you going throughout your, the rest of your life. If I tell you how to live your Christian life without telling you what Jesus has done for you, you will not be able to live that Christian life. Anyway, so the work of Jesus continues on earth after Jesus' departure, by making us, the Spirit makes us witnesses to Him. By making us stand up. By making us point to Christ. And I know there are many of you who are planting good seeds by your uh, good work. But sometimes when, when our colleagues ask, why do you go to church on Sunday? Why do you, do, why do you treat uh, your colleagues differently? Why do, you do the, uh, why do you do the things that you do? And sometimes, actually, people ask you direct questions. Why do you believe in Jesus? Know that the Spirit's job is to raise those questions, but the work that Spirit began, He will also continue in you. So stand up at, that, at those points and tell people about Jesus. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And that's the conclusion of Jesus, uh, of, of Peter's sermon. That was the beginning and that was the end. And that must be um, the beginning and end of all our speaking about God. And finally, um, when we do this, God moves people's hearts. 
So the conclusion in verse 37 of this, uh, uh, this, this miraculous event of Pentecost. When people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were convicted in their sins and they asked, What should I do? What should we do? So Peter asked them to do two things. Repent and be baptized. Which is really one and, and the same thing. Um, repentance is that radical turn to Christ, inward turn to Christ. And baptism is the outward sign of that repentance, isn't it? Repent and be baptized. And later on he adds in verse 40, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Repentance and baptism um, symbolizes that as well. Removing ourselves from the corrupt communities of this world and identifying with the new community that God is creating even now, even this Sunday, even um, through, uh, through this time now. And Peter says, when we do this, we will receive two gifts. Verse 38, forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sins of the past, future, sins of our old self that will stay with us until we die. Sins of our old self is forgiven. Receive the forgiveness of sin. That's the message of the gospel too, isn't it? The offer of the gospel. But not, it doesn't end there. The old self is done away with. The, old, the sins of the old self, even in the future, is done away with. But God gives us the Holy Spirit to live a new life. God gives us the power to get, live new life now. The gift of the Holy Spirit is a promise so that we can live a life that is set apart in this world. Um, I went to go play basketball. Um, wasn't very good, but with a bunch of guys with, uh, on, on this Tuesday. And the sports complex was just filled with young men and some, a few women um, in their teens and 20s and maybe some 30s there as well. Um, they seemed healthy and happy reasonably. And I thought to myself, how do I proclaim Jesus to this bunch? Why do they need Jesus? And then immediately I thought, well, everyone... If you talk to them, every one of them is struggling with sin. Everyone, if they don't know, know Jesus, are living with idols in their lives that promise so much but deliver so little. Every one of them, if they don't know Jesus, are frustrated with life and are looking for something that's more, purpose to live. Every one of them also will eventually die, and some of them, who knows, quite soon. And every one of them will face our maker and our judge. And when we scratch the surface, even just a little bit of everybody's life, we come to this realization that they need Jesus. And you are the A-team that God has chosen. So let's go back to the poster again. The inspiring poster. You are that A-team that God has chosen. There's no plan B. God's plan was to send the Holy Spirit, make people ask questions, make you stand up to point people to Jesus Christ, and then cut people's hearts and convict them of their sins and give them the gift of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit so that they may receive eternal life. There is no plan B. We are His witnesses. And this week may 
um, uh, may the power of the Holy Spirit be with us as we go to our different networks and friends and family. And may we bear witness to Jesus Christ this week. Amen.